Okay, this is Debbie Q with The Right Shoe. Today we're going to talk about a sobering subject, suicide. Yes, suicide is bizarre to me. I never quite understood because life is so brief. Um, why would you want to kill yourself knowing that life could always get better? But in a few instances, like when someone, I, in Kurt Cobain's situation, for example, he went to the stratosphere already. There's, there, you know, some would say that is that the stratosphere, maybe having kids and having a family is stratosphere. The point is, is that I remember being with my friend in college when Kurt Cobain died. And he, I said, I wonder why he was just so young. And she said, maybe that's all he needed. And it always stuck with me. Maybe that's all the time that these fellas needed. And that's why they chose suicide, which I don't agree with, obviously. I think that you can always work things out. I do. I'm an optimist. And ultimately, I always think things will get better. Things always have to change. Yes, there's bad, but there's got to be good. Then there's going to be bad, but it will always circle around. So why not just stay for the time you're allotted? Death will come soon for all of us. We're not vampires. I, If there's vampires, I don't believe in the eternal life. Why not just check around and see what happens? That's my, it was always my thought process that suicide is not the solution. So today it's going to be three people. Freddie Prince Sr. He was the larger than life Puerto Rican Hungarian as he called even though his dad wasn't Hungarian. I will get to that but he was Freddie Prince, who was on Chicken and the Man. Then there was George Reeves, who was Superman. He was larger than life, and his suicide shocked so many people. But people say because he was larger than life, people don't want to believe that he committed suicide. But there are some strange things about his suicide that I will bring up. And then there is my friend Cliff, who I am tying in this with because he is from Philadelphia. I like to tie in a lot. Anything I do with something from Philadelphia. I, I like either doing a story about Philadelphia or tying in a story from Philadelphia. Cliff actually was, his story is so remarkably close to Freddie Prince's for many reasons. He wasn't famous, my friend Cliff, but the whole ball of wax surrounding the suicide was very similar because if there's one thing George Reeves you can argue up and down was it suicide but Freddie Prince there is no argument it was suicide his manager Marvin Dusty Snyder was there in the room of the hotel when he did this however when George Reeves did it there was a few I don't want to say shady characters but they weren't all you know the cream de la creme there there is some at first I well, I really thought it was suicide I still it's a tough one I'll I'll let you decide it, but initially I thought suicide but then as I was reading there could have been some something going on that we don't know about and my friend Cliff who it, it unfortunately was a suicide it was, he had hung himself, and there was, I mean, it was unfortunate. But I'm going to talk about all these suicides today and see what you think of them. I'll start initially with my friend Cliff. We had met in 1988. My friend Ken had a house around the corner from me. At the time, we both had pools, so our our, our yards were catty corner to each other. That's how we initially met. We were cleaning out the pool. I think he was taking his pool down and he had just gotten a divorce. He was having a party. So we decided to go over and party, me and my sister and my friend. Actually, it was my twin friend whose sister, unfortunately, was murdered prior three years back. And that's in the second Tina Severance episode. So we all had went over to his house. It was a typical 80s party with, you know, your standard goofballs, drugs and whatnot. But there was a guy there named Cliff. He had taken a liking to my sister, who was only 15 at the time. But she was an older 15. In fact, back then, I was four years older than her. I still am, but 
you know, when you're younger, it seems more. And people thought that she was older because she acted older at the time, you know, more mature. Uh, now we kind of leveled out. But anyway, he must have saw her, you know, for the, for the sweet girl that she is, was, and always will be. He was 25, but he took a liking to her. And, he, and, and while I was fending off the advances of this curly-haired 80s goofball, I don't remember his name, and I, God, what a, I mean, it's so hilarious now, but at the time, I was probably so frustrated. You know, so I'm upstairs fending off advances. She was downstairs talking to Cliff, and they got very close. Now, they started going out. He actually went over, and he asked my mother, can I go out with your daughter? And my mom said yes. She liked Cliff. I know people here 15 and 25, and it's ridiculous, but it was different times. The problem was that Cliff was having a lot of problems. I mean, when I think of 25 now, it seems like a kid to me. I I don't think of that as an adult. I don't think you really, really get to adulthood until you're in your 30s. Your 20s are still very much youth-oriented. We have this situation where it was us three not knowing that there was a series of events going on in Cliff's life that led to his suicide. He had a child with somebody, but he was also doing drugs heavily. I'm not sure. I, I don't know if just the drug use was started by, I think, just normal partying. That's how drug use, when does it always start? It always starts with, oh, it just took a little, and then a little becomes an addiction. So I think that's how Cliff started. I, I'm not exactly sure, but I know that by the time we met him, he was heavily into cocaine, um, I, I guess drinking, and, uh, you know, coke is, was definitely an 80s drug. It's not something that you can take lightly, but going up's all that. The coming down is pure hell. And anyone that's ever came down off coke knows it's pure hell. And if you're doing it consistently, that come down's terrible. I mean, that is the worst feeling. And the more you do it, the worse the come down is. It's not physically addictive. It really isn't, even though it might feel like it. But it is mentally addictive. And it stinks. I mean, yes... Being addicted to heroin, I will agree, is far worse because that sickness is pure hell. And it's that's a whole other topic of conversation for another time. So Cliff was heavily into not only coke, but quaaludes. <clears throat> now, ludes were quaaludes like the lemons, the 714s. And I swore there was roarers, R-O-R-E-R. I thought they were 747, but... When I look back, I can only find 714 Lemon. I, I don't see the roars as much. We used to get real quaaludes. They stopped making them in the United States of 1985. They still had ludes running around, real ones, in 88. There was still what was left of them. Because real ludes are fucking phenomenal. I had a half of one and hell of a drug. It didn't seem like you could get addicted to quaaludes. They were different than the makeup of like Percocet and opiates. Quaalude, I think was a barbit barbiturate. I, I, I always want to say my doctor always told me it's barbiturate. I don't know. I always say barbiturate. And I, it's, it's somewhat different. I, I never think of barbiturates as addictive, but I guess they are. And Quaaludes was more in that category. And he was, Cliff was selling Quaaludes and cocaine out of a gas station in the northeast section of Philadelphia. This being said, he had a lot going on. He, he had had a baby with this woman. And not only did she disprove of the whole, it was called biscuits and butter. Biscuits were the Quaaludes, butter was the coke. And they did it out of this, it was right on the corner, I can picture that gas station, and you pull up to it, get gas and whatever else you need, I don't even think they sold gas there half the time, and get what you need, you're on your way, it was the perfect setup, but the cops were watching heavily, there was a guy named Bobby, who knew that the cops were on the cliff, and he told him several times, Cliff, you gotta watch yourself, you're gonna get busted, and that's exactly what happened. Now, the mother of his child obviously didn't like that Cliff was doing drugs. And, and you know, it's you don't want that to happen. It sucks. It, it, you don't want your child to be around that. I, I don't blame her for not wanting Cliff to be around the child at the time. But I think that's part of what devastated him so bad. 
So we get to, now me and Vicky didn't know about this. He was addicted to these drugs. My friend Ken said that to make money, he would say, oh, you know, I'll paint your van or I'll do this or I'll do that. Now, what he would do is because he never wanted the job to end, because I think my friend Ken paid him in weed. So he would always give him like a quarter ounce every time he did a little painting. And at first he said he painted the whole van and then he would get it down to like a quarter panel and keep going over it and over it because he never wanted that to end. So he said, you know, he'd get down to like two inches and he'd still be doing it. And you'd be like, Cliff, I mean, come on, you know, are we finishing the job or what? Anyway, he was a great friend. He was a great person. And to us at that time, drug use did not matter because we were young and drug stuffs were just woohoo fun and there wasn't no such thing as addiction back then it was just good times addiction came a little later what happened with cliff my sister was young now to cliff i think vicky was his everything i think he really loved her i do i genuinely think he loved her i think that my sister was just being a 15 year old she started going out with this guy greg who up until his death in 2013 of an overdose may you rest in peace greg i miss you every day he was heavily in our lives i mean greg was in our lives from the time she met him in 1989 but she was young so she just started going out with greg and she told cliff listen cliff i think i'm gonna go out with greg I mean, Greg was her age. Greg could go to the junior prom. Cliff wasn't going to go to the junior prom. It was stuff like that. My sister just was 15. You know, I know she went out with Cliff and there was a whole, you know, you could argue it every which way, but it was what it was. That's how it happened. You know, nobody, no normal person would blame my sister for that. You know, who who could have known what would have happened? He, I guess he got very depressed about that. The night before, he had come to my house and my mom said she wishes she would have done something differently because he was, she was making a grilled cheese. She said, now I know he was high, but at the time, she didn't know what high meant. So she said he looked strained and he kept saying, I'll make this for you, Mrs. Eden. That was my mom's maiden, or not maiden, it was her married name to my father. So she, not her name now. So he kept saying, Mrs. Eden, I'll make this for you. And she kept saying, Cliff, I'm fine, I'm fine. She said, in retrospect, she would have sat him down and said, what's wrong? You can make the grilled cheese. Just tell me what's going on. She said she knew something was wrong. Well, that very next day, I went downtown to get, I had to, I, at the time I was seeing a lot of, I wanted to be like an actress or something and I wish I went, went for it, but I met, uh, that's, I can't, I'll go off on a tangent. I went to go to see a person about commercials. They were filming me on camera. It was very fun. And when I came out, I got onto a payphone and I called my mom to say, mom, I'm going to get on the bus now. I I think this is going very well, and I think I want to do this. So she was going to give me money for the Walnut Street Theater, too. They were having acting classes. Her voice, when I called, was one of utter despair. And I said, what is going on? She said, Debbie, you have to get home right now. I think Cliff killed himself. Now, this was the days before cell phones, so nobody could get a hold of Vicky. I think she was with Greg. I, I found out in retrospect that cliff had been saying for days prior that he was going to kill himself attempted it with a gun he attempted it many times with an overdose of pills and my friend ken and his friend jack actually sat on him one night and said you're not doing any such thing and jack in particular he was an older gentleman and he really became despondent when cliff did what he did because he had tried the hardest to stop him from doing this. It really messed him up. Now, my friend Ken was living with a guy, Scott, at the time. My friend Ken is not gay, but Scott, I'm not sure about. I I think he was bisexual, and this was long before bisexuality was cool, but he lived with my friend Ken at this time, and this is important because what happened was We found out that Cliff came home. He had been doing coke. Of course, he must have been coming down off of coke. And I believe that if he 
Had it been doing coke, he wouldn't have done this. He got an electrical cord, one of those big, thick, orange electric cords, and he somehow wrapped it around. There's a railing in all of Northeast Philadelphia houses. There's not a lot of, from from the top to the bottom, it's about, I guess at the very top, it is about seven feet. But how Kenny's wall was constructed, there was only literally about six feet. And Cliff, I don't think was that, uh, I think he was, I don't think he was that tall, but he wasn't sure. I'm I'm always been amazed at how he was able to get that tied around the banister and then hang himself in that manner. That uh, physically it was troubling, but there, this was no conspiracy. He he was the one who had done it. Now he did it at a time when Kenny was supposed to come in the door. The problem was Kenny got held up with a check cashing place. It was like uh, he said that day was a fiasco and he he couldn't get he had to get to this check cashing place. He didn't get there in time and it took a long time for them to cash his check. So Scott comes home first. Now Scott was a curious soul. He he was one of very effeminate ways for him to walk in on Cliff must have. Uh, I know that he moved out and we really never saw him again after that. He said that it, when we did talk to him, he said that it devastated him. You know, he walked in and that's the first thing he's seen. When you walk up, there is stairs and then you would come right to, Cliff knew that whoever walked in that front door was going to see him because that's the first thing you saw once you walked past the four steps. It ruined Scott, I mean, for a long time. Uh, my friend Kenny had, Ken had punched a hole in the wall when I got home I ran around the corner I said are you serious did this happen and when I seen this big huge hole in the wall I just could not it's still to this day freaks me out and for a long time after I remember because I I me and Ken became friends and I would go into his house sometimes and one time I had to go into his house to do something he wanted me to feed the cats or something and I remember I was in my house but the door was locked he said if you go in the back door and feed the cats and I had to run past that hole in the wall I was scared to death it it was a terrible sight and there was a really bad feeling in that room for a long time you just didn't want to be in that dining room now i mean years later it's such a different place he stayed in that house my friend and he had a family got married later i mean the last time was a couple of years ago he's still that the house completely the kids and everything overcame what had happened i i don't equate that anymore with what happened but I'm telling you at the time it was really scary it was scary I remember running past her I was just terrified that something was going to reach out and grab me my sister comes over we tell her what happened and she's just just nodding and she's just not even reacting and I'm like boy she's taking this awfully well well here I find out that she didn't even know what we were saying she had heard that Cliff killed himself that day but she said I just didn't believe it and even she said as you were telling me I kept thinking you were because my friend Ken kept saying it's not your fault da 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 and she said that she thought he was just saying you know it's not your fault that you broke up with him he'll be fine she did not realize that we were saying he killed himself until like a half hour into the conversation then she started flipping out i mean she started flipping out so bad i remembered being like oh my god now this is the reaction i had anticipated and just like kind of holding her just so she wouldn't like put another hole in the wall perhaps i don't know i i was afraid it was a very scary time it was a very upsetting time and i i will put a picture of cliff up I know my ever-present website. It's coming, I promise. I'm slow. I have until June to upgrade my podcast. And once I upgrade it, I'm going to put everything together with all the pictures. And I will have a picture of Cliff, Superman, George Reeves, and Freddie Prince. But it is astounding, the similarities between Freddie Prince's suicide and Cliff's suicide. Not their lives, but their suicides. They were both the same age, both into drugs, both very nice, charismatic people who would have went very far, but could not handle the pressures of life. And they were so young and thrust into a world of which they were not ready. When you're that young... I can't imagine having that much pressure on you, like Freddie Prince. Now, Cliff, he had other pressures, but they were intense, and the drug use did not help. 
That was Cliff's story. My sister, you know, a lot of people afterwards, they blamed her for it. It was utterly ridiculous. His mother at the funeral said, because some people were like, oh, she shouldn't even be allowed at his funeral. She was like, I don't care. She's sitting with me. Cliff loved her, and his mother was a good woman and a wise woman, and she looked past all her naysaying and realized what it was. I mean, she knew her son loved my sister, and it wasn't my sister's fault. You know, it happened. He, she said, I'm just glad that, you know, he was so depressed for so long. She said, I'm glad that you gave him a couple months of happiness that he did have, which is the truth. So that ties into Freddie Prince because of the youth and the fact that it was a, it was a definite suicide. Freddie Prince, he was... I, I got his mom's book. It's called The Freddie Prince Story, and it's by Maria Pretzel. P-R-U-E-T-Z-E-L. Uh, she, it was made in like 1978. It's still a gripping story. He was truly an amazing child. He was a, a little kid. He grew up fast and he was, he was very talented, young. And he was only 19 years old when he was on The Tonight Show. I think it was Live at Kelly's in Chicago. They, whoever saw him, got him onto The Tonight Show. Now he was so good that Johnny Carson, who rarely did this, allowed him to sit on the couch after he was done his performance. Because Johnny Carson, and he says on this YouTube video that I found, if you look up it on YouTube, Freddie Prince, The Night Show, 1973. So from 1973 to when he died, 77, that was only four years. His rise to fame was so quick and so fast. He, you know, that's like a roller coaster. But he went on The Night Show and Johnny Carson said, you know, some people come out here and kill it, but the audience can't relate to them or they don't like them. Freddie Prince has it all. And he did. He was very charismatic. He got that show, Chico and the Man, after The Tonight Show. Plus, he got like a few television movies, like CBS movies. And he was at the inauguration ball of President Jimmy Carter, who he liked a lot. And he met Oral Roberts, the televangelist. Freddie Prince just thought he was great. And he got to meet everybody. It was just like boom, bam, boom. All this stuff started happening. When 73, he gets to Tonight Show. And then in 74, he got Chico and the Man, which of course was with Jack Albertson, who was from Willy Wonka and many other shows. He was a celebrity. Freddie Prince, even in this show, he, his charisma and everything and the way he acted he blew even jack albertson right off the set with how well he came across Della Reese, I wasn't aware how much she was involved with that show. I, I Because I remember the show so much as I was growing up. I just didn't remember Della Reese being in there. There was a picture on TV Guide of them from like 75. And she's, there's three of them. And it's Della Reese, Jack Albertson, and Freddie Prince. So she must have been pretty big to be on the cover. And there was like a lot of people. There was Scatman Crothers, Charo. So, so this is what starts happening. Not only does he have this great show, he's just all over people want him. He's going out with people like Pam Greer, who was, of course, Coffee and all in all the black exploitation movies. Quentin Tarantino made the Jackie Brown movie about her in the late 90s, which is a very good movie. And she's still you know she's a she's still here they still looking looking good uh that was i wanted to say chico's that was one of freddie prince's catchphrases so it was it was a great show i remember freddie prince was just the man people loved him he was puerto rican but he was portraying a chicano now that alludes to Mexican ancestry. I guess they said Chicano, the Chicano community was writing to him angrily because they said, oh, you don't, you don't walk like a Chicano, you don't talk like a Chicano, and you're representing us and Chico and the man, and that's wrong. So he was getting that kind of stuff. You know, everyone's got to say something. So he was getting that. Then you're on the other side, you get people that fall to their knees because you're a celebrity. They can't believe it. They're loving you. And, and then you you, you, it's within his case he was doing quaaludes they were prescribed by a doctor but apparently he was doing a lot of quaaludes I only did like I said half of a real one at a time but I, I could not never do like more than one I, I, I don't think I would have woke up for 
a week. But he was doing like six and seven sometimes, which I think is a lot. He also was drinking and using cocaine. Altogether, I do believe, that, like with Cliff, I think the drug use, I don't think he would have committed suicide had he not been so high. His mother, in the book, the Freddie Prince story, she says how she was surprised about his drug use. He had just got married to a woman named Kathy. They were married in October 1975. They have many pictures in this book. It's a great book, if you can get a hold of it. I got it on Amazon, I think, and it was very cheap. And, you know, because it's an old book, but it's good. It's really good. There's a picture of him with Rich Little, Dean Martin. I think what happens is when you're that young, he was only 22. He was only 19 when he was on the Johnny Carson show. And then to have this meteoric rise to fame, people kissing your ass and then other people, you know, saying your shit. And then, like he said, he's living in fantasy. He told his mom this. He says, Mom, I'm living in a fantasy world. I'm at the top. The only way you can go is to the bottom. And that must be how he felt. Like, he hit the top. Where else could he go? Not knowing that if you would have just hung in there, you can rise to the top and then coast. I mean, yes, you're going to go down a little, but then then you don't have to try to achieve the top anymore. I think as a young person, what people like him and Kurt Cobain don't understand is, yes, fame must be overwhelming, but it's fleeting. You're not going to be at the top forever. That's impossible to maintain that, but you can coast and you can go down a little. Then you can start to mess with in your artistic endeavors. Then you can start to branch out. This would have... I think if Freddie Prince had allowed himself to live, I think he would have really become like, he is an icon, but I think he would have become more iconic and really made such a name for himself. It's a damn shame that he just couldn't fight those demons at, at such a young age, which I can understand if, God, it just makes you feel so sorry for him. Now, they said he used to play Russian roulette um, in front of people to scare people. So I guess when he got this gun, people were like, oh, you know, there he goes with the gun again. What happened was he taking quaaludes one day and he went out and he got arrested. He was driving erratically. They arrested him. His wife told the mom, I can't take it anymore. The drugs are just overwhelming. She wanted a divorce. So at the end of his life, she said that it was just the drugs. It was, if it wasn't for the drugs, she would have stayed with him, which I think is the same reason that Cliff's girlfriend same thing and you don't want that around your kid so the last night of his life i think it was called the beverly comstock hotel in wilshire i he was at this hotel he called his mom and i i think he had been feeling depressed not only was his wife going to while the divorce was going through. And there was a lot of pressure on him. Of course, he would get not fan mail. Mail that would say, oh, well, I'm going to take over. You know, you're you're going down. And, and I think this pressure, even though you say it might not bother you, as a person, you go into the entertainment industry because you want to please people. But if people are knocking you, it's going to bother you. No matter what you say, you're going to take that to heart. That's what made him so vulnerable, and that's what made him so genuinely loved by so many people, was that vulnerability and that empathy that you could feel. You know, and he was a truly empathetic character. All these things combined with the divorce coming. When he was in this hotel that night, he was talking to Kathy, his wife, his soon-to-be ex-wife, and he had just gotten a list of all the things that he would need to provide her. I think it was $4,000 spousal support, $1,000 for the child, who we didn't really get to see that much. So this, and plus he had spent all of his money. They said he lived so fast. Everything was like water coming in, coming out. He lived as quickly as he lived as fast as he could. And that added to this, this depression, because he probably couldn't catch up with himself. So he was in this hotel that night. He called his parents. His mom said she knew something was wrong. They tried to get to the hotel, but they made a series of mistakes that led to them 
being they they never got to the hotel by the time they got to the hotel that's after it happened so when the mom walked in they were telling her oh he's at the hospital and she was like for what because she hadn't known what just happened. His manager, Marvin Dusty Snyder, said, and I'm going to just read, this is from the Freddie Prince story written by Maria Prutzel, his mother, because it's compelling, the last few things. Now, first of all, he called a few people. He called Kathy, he called his mom, and everyone that heard him, I guess Carol, there was another like manager, help assistant, he called her. She said he sounded very out of character. And so did Marvin Dusty Snyder said that he sounded so bad that he said, I'm going over there right now. He sounds terrible. When This is straight out of the book. When Dusty arrived at Freddie's apartment in the Comstock, so I guess it was some sort of apartment within this hotel, or I don't know, it said hotel, but it says, when Dusty arrived at Freddy's apartment in the Comstock, Freddy got up from the couch and opened the door. He was wearing his karate pants and was moving sluggishly. Dusty saw the gun, whether it was in Freddy's hand or the coffee table, in front of the long sofa. He was not sure, but he saw it. Freddy sat down on the sofa, his telephone nearby, and on the table in front of him lie an open telephone book, some stationery, and a pen. As Dusty sat down on the love seat, he saw Freddy write something on the paper. Is this legible? Freddy asked. Dusty read the message. I can't go on, Freddy said. I must end it. He repeated the words over and over again. He picked up the phone and called Dr. Kroger, the manager. Dusty had done this. He told him what Freddy had written and how he was acting. Dr. Kroger replied, I just left him. He's been behaving this way all week. He's just crying out for attention and help, but I'm not concerned about his doing harm to himself. After Dusty hung up the phone, Freddy made several more calls to Kathy and to Carol. He also called me, his mother. Throughout most of the 30 minutes that Dusty went was with him, the gun was in Freddy's hand. At one point, he made a quick movement with the gun. Give me that, Dusty said. Freddy pulled back. Don't come near me. I kept my distance, Dusty remembers, but I knew the two things he really cared about in his life were his mother and his baby. So I reminded him about the insurance and that it had a suicide clause, which had four months to run. The next few moments are hazy in Dusty's recollection. As Freddy sat on the sofa, Dusty was aware of what he could only describe later as one fluid movement. The gun was at Freddy's head and there was a muffled sound which Dusty scarcely recognized as a gunshot until he saw Freddy slump sideways. So he called the police. So that's how his life ended. And I can see what Dusty's saying about when something that tragic happens. I mean, fortunately, I've never been in front of anybody who shoots himself right in front of me. But I can imagine that when something that tragic happens... It has to be a blur. I mean, I can't even see how you can remember something like that. To which he said it was one fluid movement, which makes sense. It's so sad. I, I just, it breaks my heart that this talented guy probably at this point just was thinking of getting rid of his pain and that was it. And he probably couldn't think of anything else. And if he was doing that many drugs they said he had been doing so many quaaludes at this point you're just not thinking right i you know his kid grew up without a dad and it's sad the one thing that i read that i was pleased with is that the mother fought because he played russian roulette and because he was doing quaaludes which she sued the doctors for and actually won which is probably one of the first lawsuits of its kind for pursuing the doctor for giving out too many drugs to Freddie Prince. She won the case and they made the suicide accidental and then they were able to get the life insurance which was substantial. And I completely agree with that. I never understood this notion of insurances when they say, oh we can't, you know, suicide you can't. Why? I mean, it's not like something you can abuse. Once you do it, you're only going to do it once. There isn't going to be a rash of suicides because of one insurance payout. I never got that you don't get your insurance for committing suicide. It never made sense to me. The family deserves it. So I'm glad she got that case overturned. On to the next one, which is George Reeves. I The more you look into it, the more you can get confused by it because there is so much things written, so many things written, that it's hard to know which is of the facts. 
if what I'm going to tell you right now is the absolute fact, that uh, then this would be easy. It would be easily suicide. But then I'll tell you the little weird things that pop up. Okay. George Reeves, he was born in 1914. He had it going on. He, start, he was a good-looking guy, and he started out as, right off the bat, he had gotten a really good gig. Yes, he was born January 5th, 1914. And he had gotten a really good gig as a, one of the Tarleton twins in the Gone with the Wind, which everyone knows that movie. With Scarlett O'Hara, the Tarleton twins were two red-haired guys. They were twins who were competing for Scarlett's affections before Rhett Butler comes in. And he was one of them. He started getting, like, B-movie roles, but then he had to go into the Army. However, he was drafted into the Army in 1943. So this put a, a screeching halt to his career. At the time that he left, things were huge, like the powers of MGM, the great powerhouse directors of their day. You hear of all these, like, how the studios controlled everything. And they had these people locked into contracts, which were crazy. I mean, you couldn't, you, you could be made or broken by a studio, by one studio executive back before George Reeves, in the beginning of Hollywood, before he went into the army. So when he got out, he figured it was still the same way, and he would just walk back into a contract. Well, this didn't happen. He came into a Hollywood that was far different than the one he had left, and the only thing he was being offered at this time was a gig for Superman on TV. Nowadays, we have Netflix and all these cable channels, and TV is well-revered. There's many TV shows or cable shows that make a star bigger than even the movies. But back then, TV was like a step down. It was considered not as good as the movies. So he, that's what he was offered. He took it for the money. And they said he genuinely enjoyed going out because these young children so idolized him. They said he never disliked that part. He loved the children aspect of it, that they looked up to him. What he didn't like was, I guess he went to the movie theater one time. There was young kids in there and they kept saying, oh my God, look, it's Superman. I guess he was disheartened to figure out, wow, I am only always going to be known as Superman. When you see Tony Soprano, and he's a good actor, it was called The Last Castle. It was a great movie, but the whole time you're thinking, wow, there's Tony Soprano. You know, that's what happens when you become so noted as a certain character. You become that character, and it's very hard to get rid of, especially if you're really good at that character. You almost get pigeonholed. Nowadays, I, I don't know, I think it's a little easier for actors because there is so many different venues. Television isn't looked down upon. There's the stage. There's off-off Broadways. There's YouTube. You can make yourself a star just on your own merits. There's a lot of other ways to get yourself out there. I think it's easier. Back then he was Superman, but he was depressed about it. And then when Superman went off the air in 1958, he must have really been depressed about it. It was not too much longer that the incident happened. The incident was interesting because Superman, or <laughs> George Reeves, aka Superman, had been going out with a Tony Mannix. She was actually the wife of Eddie Mannix, who was a very high up director, uh, producer with MGM and the studios, the, the big studios. He knew a lot of mobsters. He was heavily connected. There was a lot of weird things that went on with Eddie Mannix that makes Tony Mannix automatically a suspicious character. She was going out with George Reeves for a long time. Eddie Mannix, her husband, knew about it. I've read enough to know that it didn't seem like he was so angered about their relationship. He actually kind of promoted it for whatever reason. Maybe they had been together a long time. Everyone has old different kind of arrangements, especially in Hollywood. So who knows? Maybe they were old and he figured, ah, you know, if she wants a little boy toy, so be it. Because she had actually bought him the house where he died in. And he lived there for a long time. It was it was like a house that was kind of around where Sharon Tate had been on Ciela Drive. It was a nice little two-bedroom house, but she had bought it for him. So to her surprise, can you imagine when he decides after the Superman show had 
been canceled to go out with this Lenore Lemon. Lenore Lemon was like the uh, the bad girl of Hollywood. She wasn't even a well-known star, but she was apparently she she was pretty, and in the pictures I saw, she was pretty. And she, but she was like a bad girl. She got in fistfights. She did things that girls just didn't do back then. Apparently, George Reeves went gaga over her and went out with her. And Lenore Lemon. Tony Maddox did not like this at all. The night of his his death, he was in the house. It was him, Lenore Lemon, a woman named Karen Von Runkle, and William Bliss. But they didn't come in till later. They were all supposed to have dinner. Lenore Lemon made it, and writer Robert Condon was there. So it was the three of them. George Reeves, Leonard Lemon, Lenore Lemon, Robert Condon. Carol Von Runkle and William Bliss came later at like 1 a.m. after George Reeves had already fallen asleep. He was pissed off when he woke up because he was woken up out of his sleep. And if he was down, of course, when you're down, you just want to sleep. So he came down and he yelled at uh, William Bliss and Carol Van Runkle. Being a nice man, he backtracked and said, I'm sorry, you know, it's been a rough night. I, I just wanted to sleep, but let's drink a little and have some fun. So apparently not only did Freddie Prince play around with Russian roulette, they said George Reeves had this weird tendency to get blanks and he would keep it far enough away from his head. He would he would play with the gun, shoot blanks at himself. This is the folklore, or I don't know, folklore, it's the truth, I, whatever. This is what was written, that he used to play these games, put it near his head, shoot it, but it was a blank, and he would pull it far enough away that there would be no powder burns on his head. He was did this all the time. I'll say it how I first read it and thought, oh, it's simple suicide. He came downstairs, he yelled at William Bliss and Carol Von Runkle, and then he apologized. Then he, they said he got sulky, and he was stomping upstairs, and they said Lenore Lemon said, oh, here he goes again, he's going to shoot himself. Now, what she meant was he's going to play those games where he puts the trigger, and I guess he did that when he was depressed, or I don't know why somebody would do that. You should never put a gun to your head even when there's blanks in it. Look at Brandon Lee. I mean, look what happened to him. He, you know, it just happens. Nowadays, I'm sure they're much more careful. But you should never put a gun to your head, period, and play around with it. It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. So they're sitting around. It was Lenore Lemon, Robert Condon, and George Reeves. They had dinner, and now... George Reeves goes up to bed. Carol Von Runkle and William Bliss, who had been invited guests, but came like 1 a.m. in the morning after George Reeves was already asleep. They woke him up, to which he got out of bed and he was pissed. So he comes down, he kind of yells at them. Then he feels bad. He said he was a nice guy. Like, that wasn't his style. So he said he apologizes. And then he says, well, I'm I'm sorry. And then he sulkily says he's going back to bed. Lenore Lemon says, oh my God, here he goes. He's going to go kill himself. Now, I think they said what she meant was he's going to play that game again where he took out the gun and said he was going to shoot himself and he would use blanks and apparently he would pull it far enough away that powder burns wouldn't get on his face because this was some game that he played. I don't understand that. Don't ever put a gun next to your head. Apparently these were some kind of games. But then they heard a shot go off. When they when they ran upstairs, William Bliss ran up first and they found George Reeves naked on his back with his feet on the floor facing up the Luger pistol nine millimeter was at his feet the bullet was in the ceiling and the shell casing was under his back which would be a suicide i mean that would be simple suicide if the story stayed like that problem was there was a lot of different interpretations of what happened that night because the guests were so trashed they said there was a 40 minute lag time between when he did this and when the police were called. Now, when I talked to a homicide detective, they were like, that doesn't make sense about the 40-minute lag time. They should have called the police immediately. Where, to me, I'm thinking of the parties that I had back in the 80s. Now, if it was one of our parties, I could just picture somebody shot themselves during one of our parties. <laughs> 
I would have had, I, we would have been freaking out, running around. I could picture 40 minutes passing easily before we called anybody. But that's just me. And, you know, you never know until that something like that happens. 40 minute lag time doesn't bother me so much. There's some strange, because there's several stories. One says that the most often one I heard is that Lenore Lemon was like, oh my God, he's going upstairs to kill himself. And then bang, bang the shots. But I also heard a story that they switched it and actually she had run upstairs bang bang the shots were heard and then ran downstairs and said to William Bliss please say that I was down here with you guys now if that happened it would surely be Lenore because the next day she took off with $4,000 worth of travelers check that her and George were supposedly going to use for their wedding slash honeymoon. And she took off to New York, never to come back to L.A. again. She died in 1989 of alcoholic dementia. If anything, I could see Lenore Lemon going up, having this massive fight with him, shooting him, because they did find several shell casing of the same caliber as the weapon used for him to commit suicide suicide when they asked her she said one day they were fighting and she just shot the gun in the floor the the fatal shot was only one shot which would still make sense but it could also be that what if she came up and just shot several times everyone said it was just one shot that night that's the problem you have even the cops said the next day when they interviewed everyone everyone was so drunk that it was near impossible to get any straight answer out of them the autopsy was done and there was no now i've asked about the uh not burns not when you put the bull, the pistol to your head there should be a burn or they call it and the stippling it when it's close to your head i guess because it's so close it makes little punctures now i don't i don't see anything in the autopsy report And they said, oh, they didn't check for the gunpowder. I heard that several cleaning products can give a false reading for gunpowder. So gunpowder isn't heavily relied upon if it's on your hand and stuff. Because there's so many things that can mimic it, just like luminol. It's a great investigative tool, but it's just that, an initial investigative screening tool. It shouldn't be an end-all be-all. So I don't see, I still could see the suicide. I Lenore Lemon, I could see. Now they said Tony Mannix had somebody kill him. And at first I was like, well, that's impossible because there was nobody. I mean, one thing that's for certain is people that were there were there. It was Robert Condon, Lenore Lemon, Carol Von Runkle, and William Bliss, and George Reeves. There was no other person. There was no sniper person that came through the window. The, the people that were there, it had to be either one of them or George Reeves killing himself. So at first I didn't get that until I read this very interesting thing on a, on a place called American Hauntings, Inc. I thought they did a great job with going over George Reeves' suicide and they said something that I had not read before. Apparently he had... Before his death, there were several incidences with his car. They were near fatal crashes, one of which involved his brakes. And the mechanic was like, I would I would really take this seriously if I was you. And George Reeves kind of poo-pooed it away because there was also a series of threatening phone calls. That George Reeves did report to the police and he pointed the finger at Tony Maddox. So for him to do that, and apparently he did have a restraining order against her. That's what I read also online. But the American Hauntings had that, which I really thought was fascinating. Maybe uh, Tony Maddox was so mad that he left her for Lenore Lemming, who is like a loser and a nobody. I'm not calling her that. That's what Hollywood called her. People in Hollywood. Maybe they this bang bang thing that he played with, with the guns when he shot it with a blank. Maybe that's how he released stress. Not everyone has their own strange things to get through stress. Maybe he did use a blank normally and somebody, one of Mannix's people, put a loaded gun in there. Then would he have used the Luger? All of Reeves' friends knew that when he was drinking he would sometimes fire a blank in his head and mock suicide. Maybe the blank was replaced by a real bullet by someone hired by Eddie Mannix. I mean, I never had thought of that. 
but that's a possibility because that's the only way they could have gotten in that room that night physically they couldn't have to me it's they what do they call that Occam's razor where the simplest answer is most often correct or that the correct interpretation is that entities should not be multiplied needlessly if you're going by that then I would say he did commit suicide he was depressed he walked upstairs he shot himself the position of him and everything does show it does allude to suicide the fact that he didn't have clothes on is a little strange they said most people don't commit suicide while naked because you know they're gonna find you so you, your natural thing is to cover up it's just a natural tendency so i can see that's a little odd so maybe she did come up lenore lemon bang 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 because there, they did find several shell casings, although she said that they had had a fight one day and she had shot them previously. That night, everyone said they only heard one shot. You could go on and on because they were drunk. It's The theory goes round in circles. Most people say he wouldn't commit suicide, but I read something that was very accurate in that, listen, he was larger than life. Nobody wants to believe that Superman committed suicide. The other things I don't know. I don't know if I was to... I Now, later on in life, there was a guy with the last name Lozzie. He was, a, I guess, a Hollywood like reporter back in the day. He said that Tony Mannix had in the brief fit of like she she developed alzheimer's but in a brief lucid entry into this downfall into alzheimer's she actually confessed to kill being behind the killing of george reeves now she was supposed to be so despondent when he died it could have been that she was just always had him on her mind like with cliff it was so depressing that he actually did kill himself i mean we still think and talk about him so maybe she just felt so guilty about things that she had done that she said that she killed him i really my gut my gut instinct is that it wasn't tony manic if anything i could see lenore lemming because she seemed to be like a wild girl they got into a fight he was pissed off she was tired of it she ran upstairs and shot him that could have been i could see that happening but ultimately i think committed suicide that's just my personal opinion. I think he was depressed. I think he was drunk. I think he went up and just pulled the trigger. And whether that was accidental or not, I don't know. But I do believe. I, I just think the way he was found and everything. It, he, he was laying on top of the shell casing. I mean, it, it makes sense. He shot himself and then fell back onto it. So that's my theory. So there was three sad suicides that... I wish never happened, and it's Debbie Q with the right shoe.